Hi there, this is Robin Norgren, and I'm your host for Creativity, Montessori, and the Meaning of Life. I'd like to start with some words today from Taking Flight by Kelly, Kelly Ray Roberts. It's about taking a big, small step. Just weeks before we moved, I was visiting my best friend in the mountains of North Carolina, and I wrote this in my journal. The clarity I've had up here nestled in the mountains in between naps in my favorite hammock is that I need to do art. I need it. I need to pursue it in earnest. I need to get a job, but only part-time. We, we do need to eat after all. And I need to give this life, this art in my heart, in my mind, in my thoughts, a real chance to breathe and dance and live. And we'll see where that leap will take me. This is my promise to myself. This is my chance. Those fears of how we'll make it, where the money will come from, will have to find another pocket in some other heart. Mine is clear now. For me, it came down to identifying, then embracing, my fears about the life I was envisioning and making a decision, a choice, to fly or stay still. I wanted to fly. I was caught by inspiration. It had a firm grip on my soul and it was leading the way. I just needed to pay attention and take action. How about you? Where are you today in spirit? Are you ready to make your decisions? Of course, it may not be the same as mine. Perhaps you're not looking to enter the world of selling your work at all. Perhaps your decision is one that involves getting started on that idea you've had tucked away for a while. Or perhaps it's learning a new craft you've always wanted to try. Whatever the case, the first small step is making the decision. One heartfelt, committed yes to your creative thoughts and dreams. Then the next step is to take action. One small step after another. By the way, I hear a lot of people talk about taking the leap, as if they're jumping off some tall platform into a huge, deep puddle of uncertainty. Instead, reframe it for yourself. Focus on doable, attainable steps. And when you do think of taking that leap, instead of visualizing a leap downward, think of a leap upward toward the sky of your potential. When we take small steps to provide a little nourishment to our creative wings, we leap and bound toward a creative joy so huge, we wonder why we didn't do it long ago. The fears disappear. Our courage expands. Our dreams become more and more a part of our daily existence. We take flight into a life less fearful, more free, more creative. For me, action means a number of things. It means giving my life a voice and my fears and inner critics something to think about. It means putting artwork up for sale just to see what happens. It means submitting applications to juried art festivals with a hopeful heart, even if I have no idea what I'm doing. It means buying a fancy printer and scanner and doing prints. It means learning how to make a website. 
It means attending art retreats alone, ready to learn. It means embracing community. It means submitting articles and works to my favorite magazine just to see if they will call back. It means one step at a time, one fear at a time, one day at a time. What does taking action look like for you? Perhaps you're an illustrator wanting to license your work. Perhaps your small step is researching licensing options. Perhaps you're a scrapbooking artist looking to share your work with the world. Why not put together a portfolio and send it off to your favorite design teams? Actions come in all sizes. Soon, you'll be leaping your way from one small step to the next until you'll find yourself right where you want to be, in the middle of a life you've always wanted. By taking action, you attract to your life the same mindful intention you put into it. Henry Nouwen says in his book, Spiritual Direction, a young man goes to a teacher because he has a question. In fact, his whole life has become a question so urgent and compelling that he cries out to the master, please, please be my teacher. Teachers can teach only when there's, there are students who want to learn. Spiritual directors can direct only when there are seekers who come with a question. Without a question, an answer is experienced as manipulation or control. Without a struggle, the help offered is considered interference. And without the desire to learn, direction is easily felt as oppression. Living the questions runs counter to the mainstream of Christian ministry that wants to impart knowledge to understand, skills to control, and power to conquer. In spiritual listening, we encounter a God who cannot be fully understood. We discover realities that cannot be controlled. And we realize that our hope is hidden not in the possession of power, but in the confession of weakness. The main questions for spiritual direction? Who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? What is prayer? Who is God for me? How does God speak to me? Where do I belong? How can I be of service? These are not questions with simple answers, but questions that lead us deeper into the unspeakable mystery of existence. What needs affirmation is the validity of the questions. What needs to be said is, yes, yes indeed, these are the questions. Don't hesitate to raise them. Don't be afraid to enter them. Don't turn away from living them. Don't worry if you don't have a final answer on the tip of your tongue. Spiritual guidance affirms the basic quest for meaning. It calls for the creation of space in which the validity of the questions does not depend on the availability of answers, but on the question's capacity to open us to new perspectives and horizons. 
We must allow all the daily experiences of life, joy, loneliness, fear, anxiety, insecurity, doubt, ignorance, the need for affection, support, understanding, and the long cry for love to be recognized as an essential part of the spiritual quest. The quest for meaning can be extremely frustrating and at times even excruciating precisely because it does not lead to ready answers but to new questions. When we realize that the pain of the human search is necessary growing pain, we can accept as good the forces of human spiritual development and be grateful for the journey on the long walk of faith. Kim Rosen, in her book Saved by a Poem, Several years after I met Dr. Angelou, I was introduced to her son, the poet and novelist Guy Johnson. He told me a story of how his mother's love of poetry had helped him through a turning point in his own life. In December 2002, he called her from a hospital room in Miami. Mom, could you recite Invictus for me? Of course, she answered. It was Guy's ninth spinal surgery. Paralyzed in 1982 by a car accident, he had frequently drawn on his mother's reservoir of poems during the most difficult periods of dealing with the loss of his body's capacities. I had to assess if it was worth living. I was at the point where hell was close. You see, before the accident, my body had been my vehicle. I was six foot five, muscular, not a bad physical presence. So part of my dynamism had to do with my physicality. But when I was paralyzed, it all turned to lard. I was just a head. I could still talk, but I could not turn. I could not move anything below my neck. As I sat with Guy in his writing office, his powerful energy fills the room and beyond. I feel like I am plugged into a vibrant current a voltage that runs through everything he says and does. Frequently, as we speak, tears come to his eyes, not when he tells his own story, but when he speaks of those he loves, his family, friends, and the poems that have touched his life. Every few minutes in the course of our conversation, he grabs a book to read a poem to me. Paul Lawrence Dunbar's Little Brown Baby, which his mother read to him as a boy, and he read to his own son, County Cullen's What is Africa to Me, Langston Hughes' Harlem Sweeties, James Weldon Johnson's O Black and Unknown Bards, O Black and Unknown Bards of Long Ago, How Came Your Lips to Touch the Sacred Fire? How, in your darkness, did you come to know the power and beauty of the minstrel's lyre? As he reads the next five stanzas of the poem, his lush musical voice fills with so much intensity that it seems to crack open and spill out through his tears. I too am weeping. 
guy is introducing me to a rich vein of poetry I have never before encountered. Until this moment, I had not realized that the scope of my knowledge was limited to mostly white, mostly mystical poets. Now he's reading to me the words of African Americans, some from the late 1800s, some from today, and I feel myself personally touched at the deepest level, as if by an intimate friend or teacher. The greatest thing about poetry, he tells me, is that no matter how, what lonely street you are on, someone has been there before you and survived. Invictus, the poem Guy asked his mother to say to him over the phone in the hospital, is such a poem a survival. William Ernest Henley, the poet, was a journalist, writer, and adventurer. But what isn't known about him, Guy explains, is that his leg was amputated and he had an eye pull put out by a branch in a riding accident. So he had real physical difficulties at a time when having physical difficulties generally meant your social death. Henley wrote Invictus as he learned to survive his losses. As we sit together in the creative ferment of Guy's office, surrounded by photographs of children, grandchildren, and friends, and shelves of well-worn books that seem to have overflowed their places and scattered onto every surface. It is clear to me that Guy's story is not so different from the poet he lauds. Here, too, is a man who has survived impossible physical and psychological obstacles to become a living inspiration through, the presence, through his presence and words. It must have been quite a lot of work to learn how to move everything again. I am watching him reach for a notebook on the other side of the room. It wasn't my doing. I mean, I worked, but I was given a divine gift. There were a lot of people working hard who never got there. He tells me it took a long time to learn to use a typewriter because he couldn't control his movements. He wrote his own poem, The Psalm of Severed Strings, while he was paralyzed, struggling to teach each finger to hit the right keys. In the poem, he speaks of marionettes who strive against flaccid muscles and confused reflexes to gain that which nature has freely given and fate stolen away. He goes on in his final stanza, Yet, if spirit remains... A human can still be seen amidst the disobedient flesh. And if the will has fiver, even wood can be made to dance. Thus, when you see them among the crowds, you have seen the true puppeteers. For with gossamer thread, each ligament, nerve, and limb is moved to rejoin life's carousel. Guy's ninth surgery, in combination with a lot of hard work and miracles, made it possible to connect with that gossamer thread and move again. It was ten days after that operation that he called on his mother to recite William Ernst Henley's poem, Invictus. That was my grandfather's poem. He uses the possessive as if his grandfather owned the deed to the work. But I understand what it means. There is many a poem that I associate with whoever passed it on to me. 
so complete is their embodiment of its essence. Guy goes on, because of that, it was my mother's poem, and she taught it to me. As I began to speak the poem to him in the hospital, Angelou recalled later in an interview, I remembered the eight-year-old to whom I had taught it. I remembered that little person stomping around, marching like he was a soldier, and now here he was, a man needing something to hold on to, something to repeat to himself.